Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. I do not want to start here. They have become such a train wreck that it's almost lazy to start with the Lakers. I mean, if I wanted to, I could crack open the mic every single day. I could open every single show by saying, damn, you see or hear what went down in El Segundo yesterday? And then just roll telephone calls for three hours. You know, maybe throw in a tweet or two from Magic, point out something stupid that the organization's done, and then call it a day. It would be easy. I could do it. In fact, I could do that, and then the show would do itself. I mean, I could, but I don't want to. And the only reason that I'm doing it right now, and when this first came up, when Magic quit Twitter, the only reason I'm doing it right now is he, at that time, was asked about an article that was allegedly being worked on at ESPN. Remember that? And this is what he had to say about that article at that time. Quote, They've been talking about that article for how many months? Laughs. Everybody run up. Oh, they writing an article. Okay, great. I'm going to say, why didn't you interview everybody at ESPN? You know how many times ESPN hired me? Twice. If I was doing something wrong to employees, disrespecting, you think they would have hired me twice? No. I know that article is not an accurate article. I can tell you that now. Now it's some disgruntled former Laker employees talking to reporters. Yeah, they're going to say what they're going to say because they wasn't doing their jobs. So what is the person going to do? Point the finger bad about the person who fired them. I'm good. I'm a big boy. End of quote. Remember, that's what Magic said about that article that we'd all heard about that was supposed to drop. Well, Baxter Holmes of ESPN dropped an article today. Now, I don't know if it's the article, but it's an article. And it's north of 6,000 words. And pretty much none of those words are good for tragic Rob Palenka, Jeannie Buss, or the Lakers. You know, it describes the reboot of the Lakers, the so-called Lakers 2.0, as a complete disaster. Having read this piece, I can tell you, it's pretty amazing. Like, I'm not sure I'd call it a sledgehammer, because just about none of it's surprising. It's pretty much exactly what you'd expect. It's just that this pulls it all together. Like, culture... We talk about this almost every single day on this show. Culture is the single biggest buzzword in all sports right now. And according to multiple sources for the article, the Lakers, under magic, had a culture of intimidation, bullying, fear, and incompetence to the point where multiple staffers had anxiety attacks. Like, working for the Lakers was giving people Panic attacks. Or to quote one former Lakers star, quote, it's bleeping crazy over there. I mean, starting from the very first meeting with the employees, where Magic reportedly told them repeatedly he had, quote, a thousand, end quote, resumes sitting on his desk, and he could replace any of them at any time. One coaching staff member who was present said, quote, it was shocking. If you're going to be in this business, you bring enough pressure on yourself. You don't need more pressure, especially from somebody who's supposed to be an ally, end quote. And allegedly for Magic, that was just the start. According to one front office staffer, quote, if you question him on anything, his response was always a threatening tone. He used intimidation and bullying as a way of showing authority, end quote. 
Oh, it's only a couple of paragraphs in. Only a couple of paragraphs in, we've already hit on intimidation and bullying. So, Magic has claimed that ESPN has hired him twice, which seemed really weird at the time. Seems even dumber now. But not as weird as ESPN advertising that Magic is going to be on their finals coverage going forward. Put that aside for a minute. Like, it was a widely known fact, too, that Magic was not grinding the way the most front office personnel grind. Here's further evidence of that. According to Holmes, Johnson was, quote, frequently absent, sometimes appearing only once a week or every two weeks, end quote. Yeah, and I guess when he did show up, apparently it was just long enough or just to bully somebody into a panic attack. I mean, that, that's absolutely amazing, honestly. Not surprising, but nonetheless amazing. This guy is president of basketball operations for an NBA team. For an NBA team. For the NBA team. And this guy's showing up once a week? Or once every other week? I mean, he's treating being president of basketball operations the way most people treat the gym. Yeah, I'll get there if I can. But I'll probably only get in there a couple of times a month. Maybe. If I'm up for it. If I'm motivated. And then again, when the guy does roll in for one of his weekly or bi-weekly visits, according to this account... It was a nightmare for anyone and everyone that he came in contact with. I mean, God, there's so much more. Like one staffer who had been with the Lakers for more than two decades was shouted out by Magic to the point that she left the facility, began to cry, and then in the months that followed, suffered increased anxiety and panic attacks, and then just left the organization altogether, according to this piece. And according to the piece, she was not alone. One Laker exec told Holmes that he also suffered panic attacks and was prescribed anti-anxiety medication. Quote, every day you go in there and you get this horrible feeling of anxiety. In the last year, I can't say how many panic attacks I've had from the bleep that has happened there. End quote. Wait a minute, we're talking about magic, right? I thought magic was this incredibly charismatic guy with the million dollar smile. Yeah, well, apparently that's not what was going on behind the scenes. One former member of the training staff said, quote, he comes off to the fan base with the big love and the smile, but he's not. He's a fear monger, end quote. Another referred to working with him as, quote, a roller coaster ride of up and down, end quote. So, I mean, it's bad enough to be like a horrible guy, but good at your job. We know guys like that, right? Horrible guys, but good at their job. This just sounds like a horrible guy who was horrible at his job. If, in fact, he even showed up for his job at all. And then on top of all that, there is the organizational staff turnover, which Holmes calculated at 37.5% since the 2016-2017 media guide was published. So, if you're running through... More than a third of your staff every few years, that tells you it's a horrible place to work. Signed, Jim Rome's XR4TI crew. Yeah, thanks for that, Desmati. <laughs> thanks, thanks for nothing, Jail. I hate to say it, but if I did the math, I'm probably worse than them. Anyway, it's worth noting that no, it's worth noting that no official complaints 
against Magic were filed to the team or the league. But if you believe what you read in this piece, and again, why wouldn't you? It's just further evidence of what I've always said. We really don't know any of these guys, do we? Because if I were to ask you what you thought of Magic Johnson, many of you would say, oh, best guy ever. Best guy ever. But if you ask any of the people who spoke to this reporter, they'd probably say one of the worst guys ever. And if he's not that, then he's just one of the worst bosses ever. I mean, what's worse? If you work there, what would be worse? Magic never being around or Magic being around? Sounds like tie for last. And the only thing more amazing than me rolling out a Memorial Day weekend with a take on the L.A. Lakers is that I have another take on the L.A. Lakers from that same piece. I just can't fit it all into the open. That's how much of a mess it is. That's how, how much of a mess they are. Big enough that I would roll out a Memorial Day weekend with a take on the Lakers, and they are nowhere near sniffing the postseason. That's crazy. Are you doing a repair that needs a special tool? O'Reilly Auto Parts makes it easy with our loaner tool program. Over 80 specialized loaner tools are available, so we're sure to have a tool in stock to help you get the job done right. Purchase the needed parts and put down a deposit on the loaner tool, return the tool in its original condition, and receive a full refund. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Eddie Olchek joins us. Edzo, it's so good to have you back. How are you? Hey, welcome. Uh, appreciate you having me on, Jim. I hope you're doing well, pal. Doing great, Eddie. Great to hear your voice. Listen, before we talk about the game one last night, just going into the matchup, you talked about the fact that the Bruins and the Blues are almost mirror images of each other. Over the course of the playoffs, what did you see that made you feel that way? Well, I just think it's the mindset, Jim, of, of the way that they play. Both teams like to play a you know, a game where there's not a lot of east-west passing uh, exiting the zone. Uh, they like to play straight ahead. They like to get in on the forecheck. They have defensive cores on both sides that have the ability to be able to, to make those clean exits out of the zone and also jump into the play. And we saw last night uh, Boston with the, the first couple of goals of the game by by defensemen, Connor Clifton and then Charlie McAvoy. So that's the one thing I think separates these two teams uh, from a lot of teams in the league is that they have the ability and the schematics that allow their defense to go ahead and turn a two on two into a three on two, or maybe a, you know, a two on one to a three on one, because a lot of their defensemen jump into the play. So very similar schematically and look, they're, they're heavy teams. They, they're not afraid to go ahead and, and get in the corners and muck it out and grind it out and clutch and grab and hold and do whatever. So, uh, I just thought going into this series is that uh, when when each team looks in the mirror, uh, they see a very uh, close resemblance of uh, who they're going to play in the Stanley Cup final. Look, that was a missed opportunity for St. Louis last night. There, there's no other way around it. Up to nothing. Uh, you got Boston on the ropes. Uh, they looked like they had 10 days off, which they did. And then they got the goal in that uh, second period, Jim, and Boston found their game. They got bigger. They got quicker. Uh, they got faster and uh, they pretty much gave it to the Blues the rest of the game, and the Blues just, they couldn't, they didn't have a response. And, you know, Jordan Bennington, the young goaltender for St. Louis, gave his team an opportunity with a great second-period effort. Uh, but once Boston got that first goal, Jim, uh, it was a missed opportunity for the Blues in game one. Eddie Olchek joining us. Ed, so you covered a lot of ground in that, and I appreciate it. Listen, so you go to the third period, 
and Boston's yeah. up three two. Defenseman Tori mm-hmm. Crew got into it at the end of one or one end of the ice, lost his helmet, yeah. skates to the other end of the ice, helmetless, uh-huh. and absolutely lays out blue center Robert Thomas. Boston fans yeah. went crazy. What did you make of that play? Well, him and David Perron, that being Tory Kruger, going at it in the uh, in the Boston defensive zone. I mean, they were pitchforking one another, cross-checking. Uh, they came together. Perron popped the helmet off of Tory Krug. Uh, the referee said, let him play, which is fine. Uh, I'm okay with that. And Krug got up the ice. He read the play. The puck moved up the right-wing boards in the blue zone. And, uh, you know, he skated, you know, probably about 150 feet to make the hit and never left his feet. It was a good, clean, hard hit. Robert Thomas never saw Tory Krug coming. And, look, that's, you know, that's playoff hockey. Now, there could be an argument where some people think it was a charge. Uh, could have been a penalty, but uh, I thought he glided into the hit. I don't think that he, you know, skated right into the hit. He skated a long distance, but but those type of plays are going to happen. And, and you see what happened earlier in the game, Jim, and I think it, it kind of hurt St. Louis because there were some penalties that they took that you can't have come playoff time, let alone in game one of the Stanley Cup Finals. So those are preventable penalties, whether it's a hooking call or a bad penalty by Sunquist. Uh, you, if you're going to take a penalty, it better be a good one, especially against a real good power play in Boston. Now, I will say that Boston's power play was not very good last night. I know they got the power play goal by Charlie McAvoy, but they passed up some opportunities. They were a little bit too nice on their power play. And, but uh, I, I didn't have any problem with uh, kind of how that whole play uh kind of develop with Tory Krug, David Perron, and eventually Robert Thomas. Yeah, nor did I. Eddie Ochuk, my guest. And to your point, Ed, when you look at Boston's power play, as good as it is, and St. Louis, typically a really disciplined team, they cannot afford to take penalties. And what might not have come back to bite them last night, it did with that one power play goal. It will if it keeps up. Now, you played with Bruins head coach Bruce Cassidy in Chicago back in the day. What was he like yet as a teammate, and what do you make of the job he's done with this Bruins team? You know what, Jim? Uh, I think having crossed paths with a lot of people in, in our game. The one thing I will say is that Bruce Cassidy, and, and I think this, this is the most important thing to me, Bruce Cassidy is the same guy today where he's three wins away from winning the Stanley Cup as a head coach of the Boston Bruins as he was when he was a rookie in the National Hockey League back in you know, 83, 84, 84, 85. Um, I, I think the world of the guy, I mean, he has paid his dues. Like he went, I think, I think it was 12 or 13 years in between NHL coaching jobs uh, from his time in Washington to getting the opportunity in Boston. And he's done a very, very good job for a team that has high expectations. So I I think he can relate to today's player. Uh, The way he played, uh, a very up-tempo type of game, uh, a puck-moving defenseman, I think he encourages that. And I think that's the way the game is. And I give him a lot of credit for keeping his hat in the ring all those years from coaching in the East Coast Hockey League and, and, and going to the American Hockey League and being an assistant coach and a head coach in Providence for the Bruins for six or seven years and then eventually getting his chance. So uh, to the hockey part of it, I mean, I give him a lot of credit for hanging in there and he's being rewarded. But again, I go back to the, to the, uh, to the heart of the man. and uh, He's the same guy I knew when we came into the league pretty much together in the early 80s that he is right now. And uh, that's, uh, I think that's a big credit to uh, Bruce Cassidy. Eddie Olchak joining us here in the jungle. All right, Ed, shifting over to your other passion, what do you make of how the first two legs of the Triple Crown have played out? <laughs> well, Jim, you know what? It's been, great for, uh, it's been great for banter and business, I'll tell you that, because we're still talking about it, right? I you mean, bet. We're still talking about the uh, disqualification to Kentucky Derby. 
Um, you know, we saw what happened at the Preakness. Unfortunately, Johnny Velasquez, uh, Hall of Fame jockey, got dropped at the gate uh, from Bodie Express, the maiden, in that Preakness race. We see that all the time, right? Like, we watch hundreds of races a week, and we, you see, unfortunately, jockeys fall off their horse, and, and horses continue to run around the track. And, again, I'm not a social media guy, but just having people tell me that people were enamored with Bodie Express, the uh, jockeyless horse, continued to run around the race, you know, run the tra- race and around the track. And, you know, look at horses are herd animals. So, you know, they see other horses running there. They, they got competitive juices and, and got in there. So, look, uh, War of Will ran a, a huge race at the Preakness. Of course, he was right in the middle of uh, all the disqualification at the Kentucky Derby. Tyler Gaffleone rode a perfect race. Uh, I was on the set that day, Jim, for NBC. Our our, uh, our colleague Jerry Bailey was uh, off celebrating a graduation with his son, and I got a chance to sit in Jerry's seat with uh, Mike Tirico and, and Randy Moss. And the way that track was playing that day, um, he was in the he was in the garden spot. The inside of part of the racetrack was perfect. Tyler Gaffleone rode him perfectly. And you know, look, I, I don't know if War of Will can go the mile and a half at the Belmont. But uh, he certainly showed everybody what type of animal he was, not only in the Kentucky Derby by avoiding a spill in the Derby when uh, maximum security came out on him, but just his athleticism in the Preakness to be able to shoot right up the rail and, and win the Preakness. So there's uh, been a lot of drama. I think it's been great for the business when people are talking about it. And uh, hopefully we'll have a, a thrilling race uh, at the Belmont coming up in about a week and a half. And one, one more thought about the Derby itself. And I think you understand this because you've owned horses, we've owned horses. We're in yeah. it for lots of different reasons. But, of course, we all want that Derby dream, right? We all want that. Right. Interestingly enough, Eddie, the owners of Country House are, are my partners. It's Alex Solis. Mm-hmm. It's Jamie Roth and her family and a buddy of right. ours named Guinness McFadden. Like I know them. We've done business. We own horses with them. How would you feel if you won the Derby the way they won the Derby? And you and I could talk about this for an hour, but how would you feel if you were them? Because I've discussed it with them. I'm really curious how you feel about that. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a part of sports where, you know, somebody does something illegally or uh, finds a way to win with uh, crossing the line and uh, the rules in place to be able to, to, to keep it above board, so to speak. And, now look, we've seen it at Olympic Games. Uh, we've seen it in horse racing. Uh, you know, look, that, that's just the way that it goes. And, and sometimes uh, you need a little bit of luck. And uh, they don't ask, they don't ask uh, you know, how many times you win. It's just, you know, it, it, it's how you win. And if you get second place, yeah, great. Look, in, in a perfect world, yeah, you, you'd like to win it on the fair and square for sure. But the rules are in place there. And sometimes people get the benefit of, uh, of somebody else's misfortune and, Hey, look, you know, I mean, will, will 25 years from now, will, will people still be talking about the first disqualification? Yeah, probably, because, Jim, it was the first time in, in Derby history that a winner was disqualified. Um, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, when you, when, you go to the, uh, when you go to the bank and you see, that, you see that deposit in there for winning the Kentucky Derby, I don't think anybody's going to be saying sorry or feeling bad for themselves because, you know what, the skate could easily be on the other foot and you end up getting taken down. I, I've had horses where I've won a race and got taken down because of a, you know, an infraction coming out of the gate or down the lane. And look, you're upset. You understand, but uh, that's just the way the, uh, the the horseshoe kind of falls there every once in a while. It's really well said, and it probably Eddie would sound like I'm saying it because they're friends of mine. But the fact of the matter is, they did not elevate a horse that came in 17th and then make that horse right. the winner. That horse ran its eyeballs out. It ran right. a winning race. Right. 
Yeah, and, and look, like I said, sometimes you're the beneficiary right. of being at the right place at the right time. Look, just to get the horse to the derby. I mean, Jim, what do we have? We have, like I think, 25,000-plus foals every, every year. year that drop, right? right? And you have 20, 20 horses make it to the Kentucky Derby just to be there and qualify now for the Derby is an, is an incredible feat. To hit the board is absolutely incredible. And like I said, you need a little bit of luck every once in a while, and Country House was the beneficiary of, of maximum security's uh, infraction there when they started to turn for home in the Derby. Folks who won that race have nothing to apologize for. He is the lead NHL analyst and horse racing analyst for NBC Sports. Remember, Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Final, St. Louis at Boston tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's on NBC Sports Network. Ed, you're the best. Thanks so much, and great to have you back. Thanks, pal. Great to be with you. You know the excuses. You've probably used them. I'm not going that far. I'm in a rush. It's too uncomfortable. Sometimes I just forget. Listen, do not kid yourself. There is no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. If you have used any of these excuses or any others, you're putting yourself at risk of injury or even death. In 2017, more than 10,000 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. That's 51% of people killed in motor vehicle crashes that were not wearing their seatbelts. No matter what kind of a car you drive, wearing your seatbelt is the best defense in a crash. Even when you sit in the back seat, you still have to buckle up. That goes for when you ride in taxis and you use ride-sharing services too. Cops are on the lookout. They're writing tickets. Why would you take that risk? In 2017 alone, seatbelts saved nearly 15,000 lives. So do the smart thing and buckle up every trip, day or night. Click it or ticket, paid for by NHTSA. But there's a lot more to it than just magic. Like I got into the fact that while it seems like magic was not a good dude or a good employee or a good boss, there's still a lot more to it. I mean, I made that point earlier in the hour because when you're not showing up to work very often and when you finally do get around to going into the office and you bully and intimidate people to the point of them having anxiety attacks, that's not so good. But, but, I don't want to put this all on Irv. Let's not get so focused on the fact that he was allegedly bullying people into panic attacks that we lose sight of the fact that that management team of Magic and Rob Palenka were just flat out weird when it came to actually assembling that roster. I mean, according to the report, there was a time where they reportedly had two different war rooms. Two different war rooms during the draft. One for Johnson and Palenka, one for everybody else. And then reportedly, Johnson and Palenka went off the board and then drafted somebody who the scouts and the front office were not expecting. And then there's that one good moment for them when they signed LeBron James. But then they promptly chased that with a bunch of signings that made no sense to anybody inside the building or outside the building. Made no sense to anybody except Johnson and Palenka. You know, signings like Rajon Rondo, Lance Stevenson, JaVale McGee, Michael Beasley. If you were confused by surrounding LeBron with a bunch of guys who can't, who can't shoot it, and combustible personalities, you were not alone. Again, back to the quotes. One coaching staff member, a member of the coaching staff now, told Holmes, quote, we all had the same reaction that the basketball world did. Like, what the bleep are we doing? Not only are we not getting shooting, but we're also getting every basket case left on the market. End quote. Yeah, maybe a disgruntled coach, or maybe a guy who was telling the truth. 
the coaching staff was like, what the hell are we doing? None of these guys can shoot. And they're, quote, all basket cases. Also, it should be worth noting, some of this or all of this might be sour grapes from former Laker employees. Maybe. But if that's the case, man, we've got enough sour grapes to start our own wine label. See, that's the thing about this report, right? Maybe it is sour grapes, but it's not surprising. None of it is. I mean, listening to any of this, does any of it surprise you at all? Are you surprised that the culture is a disaster and that these guys don't have a plan at all? And while a lot of this is directed at magic, it's not like the rest of the organization is skating either. Like there's that through line that the organization does not have a plan. Magic and Rob do not know what the hell they're doing. We're not prepared to do the job that they were hired to do and that they bent over backwards for agents. Like Palenka, he comes off and was described as somebody who sometimes told stories that could not possibly be true. So, Magic apparently bullies, and Palenka apparently lies, according to the piece. One staff member said, quote, We think, more often than not, he's not being truthful. That goes through the organization, end quote. (laughs) And most damning of all is, it's not going to change. According to Holmes, quote, multiple team staffers, as well as others close to the organization, cast doubt on the possibility of the team changing its pattern of Lakers family hirings or on overhauling the culture itself. As one source close to the coaching staff said of bus, she has accepted that this is who they are, end quote. Maybe she has, maybe she hasn't. Maybe it's not Jeannie Buss who has accepted that this is who the Lakers are. But instead, Linda Rambis, because you know the running joke about Linda Rambis is, quote, the shadow owner of the Lakers. It's absolutely incredible. According to one front office staffer, Rambis knows that and, quote, she loves it. And even more insane, quote, she controls and manipulates Jeannie, end quote. I mean, seriously, (laughs) given how horrendous they've been, is it at all surprising to hear that Linda Rambis allegedly runs the Lakers? I mean, Anthony Peeler's wife didn't want any of that. Members of George Lynch's family passed on that job. Corey Blunt's niece didn't want to run the Lakers. I mean, again, anytime you read a report like this, you have to take into consideration who is being quoted, what their agenda might be, what they might be looking to get out of it. Look, there might be people who are bitter and looking to take it out on Madge, Rob, Jeannie, and Linda, whoever else. But when you look at the fact that they've missed the playoffs six straight seasons, it kind of all makes sense, doesn't it? And not at all surprising. Derek Dietrich is my guest. Derek, good to have you on. How are you? Jim, what's up? Hey, man, how are you? Good morning. Happy to be here. Good morning. Great to have you, Derek. I appreciate it. All right, so you homered last night as the team got a split in that day-night doubleheader with Pittsburgh. How satisfying was it to have that offensive explosion in the second game? And then what's to say about how good this team can be? Yeah, we needed that second win. Anytime you're having a doubleheader like that and uh, a team in your division, um, it was important. We needed to get uh, in the win column there uh, yesterday. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just uh, the bats came around. You know, we've been uh, really – the lineup's been clicking in the, the last few weeks. Our pitching has been solid, the, the best all year, all year round, and we play quality defense. So, um, you know, we're starting, to, we're starting to click and hit on all cylinders. 
Derek Dietrich joining us. Now, Derek, that home run you hit was an absolute bomb to right that nearly left the stadium altogether. So what was your thinking going into the at-bat, and then how did it feel when the ball left your bat? Um, well, my thinking going into that bat is similar to most of my at-bats. I'm trying to put my best swing on it and hit as hard as I possibly can. So uh, not, that, nothing changes on that that front. But, um, yeah, that's a good one. When you when you hit it as clean as that, and you, it's almost like you don't even feel it off the bat. And, uh, you know, it was nice. Um, you know, anytime, all of our guys, we we enjoy um, hitting a ball like that, and uh, we have we have a good time, and and we celebrate each other, and uh, you know it's been uh, it's been a fun go so far. You know, which brings us to the next point, Derek. Like, I'll be honest, when I saw that home run, I pretty much just sat there and I admired it, and I didn't do the work. So, how would you describe your reaction to that home run, and then the jog around the bases? Um, I guess it's become the norm um, when I hit when I hit a ball well like that and just the way I want and I'm able to, to back it up and, and uh, stay behind my, my front leg and everything like that it's uh, it's just kind of been part of it I mean I actually practice that drill of staying back and, and um, staying behind the ball and so anytime you get a chance to do that and obviously like you said it's, uh, it's not easy to so you gotta, you gotta be able to celebrate and have fun and, and, and play the game and uh, you know it's a great feeling hitting a home run no question Derek, I want to be very, very clear about this. I mean, in terms of celebrating that or taking a moment to kind of appreciate it, man, I love it. I love it. It is so good for the game. It's fun. Home runs are something that are supposed to be celebrated because they're so hard to do, except there's still people in the game that don't really understand that, right? They don't want guys hitting home runs and then admiring them. They want guys to hit a home run, immediately put their head down and run around the bases. Like, you know, when you did that against the Pirates back in April, you were thrown at. So what do you make of that thinking? Those who are still resisting this. Well, I think if you're trying to do something um, to show up the pitcher or direct it at the pitcher or another team, um, I think that's one thing. But when you're celebrating and there's no bat flips, there's no um, you know talking smack, there's nothing like that. It's a quick admire and a jog around the bases. I'm totally cool with that. Now, when you start directing stuff at you know the pitcher, or the other team, then then you're probably going to have a little bit of an issue. Um, but I mean, I think you just gotta let the guys play. I'm I'm all for, you know, let the kids play, let anyone play. Just play the game. This is a fun game. It's a tough game at times. So why not celebrate these little successes that we have in a day to day basis inside the game, and, and go about your business and and come ready to do it the next day. I think uh, you know baseball is going to be a okay if we everyone does that and takes care of themselves. Derek Dietrich joining us. I like that a lot. You know, I've had other guys on the show, guys like Alex Bregman who talk about how important it is to enjoy the game, have fun with the game, make the sport feel exciting, make it fun for kids. Is that a motivating factor for you too? Absolutely. I mean, like I always say, we play, I have the best job in the world. I play a game for a living. I played it my whole life. And um, I want to enjoy every second I can do this for the, for as long as I get a chance to do this. So, you know, most of it's because we're having fun. I'm having fun with my teammates. I'm having fun in the dugout. I'm having fun on the field, in the clubhouse. You know, that's that's the name of the game. I think the more that we do that and we embrace that, the better off we're going to play. And, and obviously the more fun we're going to continue to have. So I'm all for that. I mean, we you got to just – this is the time where you can be yourself and just play and enjoy it and, and um, cherish the game of baseball. Listen, winning is fun. Mashing is fun. But you are going to make sure you're going to have some fun. I'll give you a great example. It's not just about the production, although you're putting up big numbers. Earlier in the season, there was a swarm of bees at the ballpark. Somebody comes onto the field in a makeshift 
beekeeper <laughs> outfit. Reliever Jared Hughes says, quote, at first we're saying, who is that? Then we realized this guy is way too jacked to be a beekeeper. No way that's a beekeeper. Sure enough, it's Derek, end quote, which is amazing. What was the thinking behind that, and how did you get that outfit together? Yeah, I mean, um, so that was so last minute. I mean, we're we're in the dugout, and we're like, what's going on here? We're not starting the game. And they're, they're, they're talking about there's thousands of bees at home plate. And I'm like, well, we need a beekeeper. And I, I don't honestly know how this stuff fits me. It's, it's <laughs> None of this is premeditated or planned. So I just, like, jog back into the clubhouse. I look for the first <laughs> white T-shirt or white shirt I can find. And it has to be, happens to be our, our rookie sensation, Nick Senzel, a nice, cleanly, button down uh, long sleeve and i'm like i'm putting this thing on over my uniform i jog back out there grab a helmet and with help of the grounds crew found a found like a, a weed killer sprayer and uh threw it on my back and i ran right out there and tried to try to take care of the problem I, you know just to you know, lighten the mood obviously we wanted to start the game and play ball but you know it was just uh i don't know something that just came to me and hit me and uh it kind of started a, a little bit of a momentum there for a few days of uh couple funny things here and there and uh yeah everyone had a good laugh at it oh it's so good it's so good but it's not <laughs> like it's a one-off Derek because you also worked up an electrician's outfit when the lights were not working in Oakland but according to another teammate the best look was when the team was wearing those 1911 uniforms and you went with the handlebar mustache made of eye black what was the thinking behind that and then how pleased were you with the results which included a home run like that also worked yeah, I mean, so it gets back to the teammates, man, and having fun with them. So one of our guys, Jesse Winker, outfielder, um, I was like, you know what, I'm going to put on a lot of eye black today, like a lot more than usual. And I was like, do you want to have a contest just to put on more? And he's like, no, because I know you're going to win. I'm like, all right, then I'm going to put on like a mustache or something. And he's like, let me draw it on. So I let him draw it on there. And I, I don't think he thought I was going to wear it outside of maybe the, the, cl- uh, the training room where we put it on or maybe just during warm-ups. But I wore that thing <laughs> the whole game. And it was it was a blast. And then to have to three, hit three home runs on three consecutive pitches, go back to back to back with with our guys, that was uh, that was pretty sweet. So again, man, it gets back to having fun with our guys. Everyone's just so down to earth and and just loves to have fun, play the game hard, and it just makes it a great atmosphere to do all of that. Dude, Reds and, baseball and has not been this fun in a long time. Derek Dietrich joining us, but if we're only about that. If it were only about having fun, that'd be one thing. But you are crushing the ball this season, and to the point where your name is getting mentioned as a possible All-Star appearance, which is taking place in Cleveland, where you were born and where you went to high school. What would it mean to see a writing campaign start to get you into that game? Yeah, that's a dream come true. Obviously, ever since I started playing the game, um, you know, I wanted the opportunity and I wanted a chance to, you know, play in the All-Star game. And if you know, obviously, if I'm deserving to be able to play in my hometown for my first all-star game back in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, that would be like the writing on the wall. It would be amazing. I, I, you know, hopefully I have a chance. Um, sounds like I'll need some help from uh, Cincinnati fans and baseball fans all over. Um, but, I mean, something that I've, I've had circled from day one of uh, probably once I found out last year where it was going to be in Cleveland and something that I've wanted to um, – you know, work towards as a personal goal. And, um, you know, let's see what happens. I'm looking forward to it and hopefully being there in Cleveland. And Derek, let's not forget about this, though. We're talking about you maybe being an all-star. We're talking about you being in the top 10 in a number of categories. But you signed a minor league deal with the Reds back in February. What was your mindset once you got that deal? And then how would you go about approaching spring training? 
Um, well, yeah, uh, obviously the offseason was a little, things went down a little unexpectedly um, as far as free agency, but I knew I was a major league player. I've always been a major league player. And, um, you know, once I had the opportunity and I knew that, um, you know, signing with the Reds was going to be the best one for me, I knew it was done, get ready and go to, go to, go to work, take care of business. And, uh, you know, from day one, I've, I've felt welcomed from this organization. I felt like I had a great opportunity with this organization. And, um, no, I'm, as, right now I'm just taking advantage of each and every day that I have a chance to play. For, for the Cincinnati Reds, and, and I'm loving every minute of it. He is a member of the Reds. Nine home runs and 15 runs batted in in the last 22 games alone. Again, the Reds are at home tonight against Pittsburgh. Derek Dietrich joining us and having fun with it. Derek, I really appreciate it, man. Great conversation. Keep doing you, and really nice to have you on the show. Thanks, Jim. Hey, and I saw that you got a, you have a cat at home, and I'm sitting here as I'm doing my uh, interview with you. I'm sitting with my cat, Reese. so we got that in common. Dude, and I love that. Hair. What kind of cat? <laughs> What kind of cat? It's a tortoise shell. A little tortoise shell. I saved her. Rescue. Listen up. It takes more than hard work to make it to the pros. It also takes smarts. The kind of smarts that can read a defense and pick it apart. Well, hiring is no different. You need smarts to find the right people, but you don't need to spend years honing your game. You simply need ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then actively invites them to apply for your job. Try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash clones. Again, ZipRecruiter.com slash C-L-O-N-E-S. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Let's talk some golf. As I mentioned at the end of last hour, no Kepka, no Cat, no Hefty, no problem. Because the Colonial this week belonged to tour favorite, and walk it in legend, Kevin Knopf. The walk it in legend. Nine days after getting the chop at Bethpage, Kevin Na packed his bags early on and he told his caddy, quote, you know what? If taking the weekend off gets me rested for a golf course that I have a chance to win at, that I know I can win at, then things happen for a reason. End quote. Hell yes, they do. Because that's exactly what Kevin did. And not only did he win at Colonial, he ran away and hid with that tourney. And he put a beat down on the field. And after he beat back Jordan Spieth, who was tripping around his local stomping grounds in Fort Worth, looking to get right, with the entire crowd hoping to see him get his first win in two years, he beat that back. Instead, what they saw was Kevin Na turn the track inside out, wax Jordy by eight strokes, and then even more importantly, go all Oprah Winfrey with it when he lobbed his bag man, Kenny Harms, the keys to a 1973 Dodge Challenger. <laughs> You all get a call. Everybody gets a car. My caddy gets a car. Get My bagman gets a car. Get My looper gets a car. Get Listen, for winning that tournament, Kevin got 500 FedEx Cup points, 1.3 mil in cash, a trophy, a plaid champion's jacket, and 
the title to a 73 Dodge Challenger. The exact kind of 10-second whip that Vinny D would drag for a quarter mile down the streets of Los Angeles. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Yeah, well, now Kenny Harms gets to live his life a quarter mile of at a time. He gets to live that fast and furious life thanks to his boss, Kevin Na, who made good on a promise to gift him that sled if they won the tourney. According to Kevin, the agreement was put into place during Tuesday's practice round. His caddy, Kenny Harms, straight up asked if he could have the rig if they won, and Na said yes. So on Sunday, when he jugged his bird on 18, he turned to his caddy, he pointed to the Dodge, and he yelled, that's your car. Man, fortunately for Kenny Harms, he lugs around Kevin Na's bats and not Matt Kuchar's. Because Na pointed to it and said, the car is yours. Cooch probably would have pointed to a $5 bill and screamed, that's your Lincoln. And then driven off in the car himself and told his looper what a great week it was for him and that he really should be happy. Yeah, sorry about that, Matt. Not really. See, this is your rep now. It doesn't matter that you were thought to be one of the best guys ever prior to that. This is your rep now. I know it's very confusing to you, and you can't understand why people keep bringing it up, and you can't seem to shake that, but that's going to happen every time a tour pro does something really nice for his caddy. Because as Steve Elkington told me last month on our podcast, you picked the worst hill imaginable to die on, Matt. Well, it was bad, mate. I would have spilt five grand around the bar if I would have won down in Mexico, but uh, that didn't happen that way. He it up, upside down. A lot of tour players are saying that was a terrible hill to die on. If you're going to die on one, that's, that was a bad one to die on right there, mate. That was a bad move. Money's a bad move, especially when you've got tons of it. Only L could lay it out like that. Perfectly said. It's a bad move. It's a bad move. It's a bad hill to die on. Money. It's not a good thing to be called out for, especially when you have bleep tons of it. Right. And this is why Kevin Na tipped out his bag man a freaking muscle car when he won $1.3 million on Sunday. And it's why Kenny Harms told his boss he loved him afterwards on Instagram. What do you think about the car? I love you, man. <laughs> I love you. That car is just... It's just amazing. 73, the first car I ever had was a 73 Camaro. Now I actually actually have a car that doesn't have any putty or rust or anything. It's a super car. I enjoy the ride. Amazing. Thank you. That's how it's done, Cooch. It's that easy. It's that simple. That's how you do it. Take care of the ones who take care of you. Unfortunately, it's now too late for you. Because like I said, every time something good happens to one of these caddies, you are going to be the first name on everybody's mind for how not to do it. So congrats to Kevin Na, not only for winning the Colonial, but more importantly, for not being Matt Kuchar. That's how you do it. That car is yours. You know I'm talking about Ryan Hollins. Ryan, good to have you back. What's up? How are you? What is going on, brother? My man, this is the best time of year, and there is a ton to talk about in the NBA. But, Ryan, before I get to any of this, I saw you hanging out with the legend, 
Bobin yesterday. Bobin Marjanovic, what was it like to spend some time with Bobby? Let me let me let me paint this picture for you. A seven foot guy and a seven four guy are walking through the airport, and they've got to make it through security. That's what was going on in New York yesterday. <laughs> That's wild. That's wild. Did it live up to the legend? Was it everything you thought that it would be or expected it to be? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, we we were literally stopped every every five feet. You guys play basketball. What what team do you play for? Hey, Bobon, shout out John Wick. You were you were amazing there. You know, I for a second I felt like the the agent of Bobon for a while. But I mean, literally, if you had seen the looks on people's faces as their eyes lit up and turned, like, hold on, like, there, I've, I've never seen so many double takes in my life. <laughs> Ryan Hollins joining us. That's a blast. So you saw Wick, obviously. You saw him in the opening scene. What did you think of Chapter 3? I actually have not seen it oh, yet. Okay. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of my world. I, I am going to see it as soon as possible. I, I, I love any time our, our fellow athletes do more than just basketball, so – I couldn't be more excited for my guy as he heads back to Serbia. Oh, no, he got he got a lot of screen time. You're going to be really proud of your guy, Ryan Hollins, joining us. All right, so you had some concerns about the Milwaukee Bucks and their ability to win a championship this year. You made that pretty clear. You were right. What did you see that made you feel that way? I told you Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, has a lot of learning to do. And one thing you can't do, Jim, let me reiterate this, you cannot dunk your way through the playoffs. Secondly, you put Giannis Antetokounmpo in the LeBron James system. You think you're going to get LeBron James-like results? No way. The one thing that makes LeBron special, and I want you to hear this, not just his scoring, it's his ability to play make and make his teammates better. At a certain point, Giannis could not penetrate against Kawhi Leonard, first. Secondly, he didn't know the timing of when to get off the basketball. At some point in time, you're going to find guys just as big, just as strong, just as equipped as you are physically and talent-wise. So you have to use your skill set. You have to use your teammates. So the next step for Giannis is not just passing, playmaking, but being able to knock down a jump shot, and then the kid becomes unbeatable. We were talking to Ryan Hollins. All right, then, so that's where he has to go. That's where they have to go. You called your shot on the Bucks. Having said that, what do you make of what Kawhi Leonard has done during the postseason and during the Eastern Conference Finals in particular? Jim? Ryan? He's the best player on the planet right now, bro. Hmm. I, I know you've, you've covered Michael. You've covered Kobe, Durant, LeBron. Right now, Kawhi Leonard is the best player on the planet. And it's not as pretty as Mike. Uh, it, it's, it's not as fluid as LeBron or, or Magic. But the one thing you've got to understand, I don't think we've ever seen a two-way performance like this. Kawhi Leonard literally guarded Giannis. There isn't a player in the NBA that can keep Giannis Antetokounmpo from the rim for one. Two, he's not just a good, solid defender. He's a playmaker, bro. In the clutch, he was getting steals and making plays to win the basketball game. Okay, we're not done yet. On the offensive end, he took over games. Literally, there were stretches where he would go on these Kawhi Leonard 9-0 runs. So right now in the NBA, he's the best player on the planet. How he finishes up these finals? We'll see where we rank him among the best of the best. But Kawhi Leonard, man, he is right on his face. Oh, did I forget? He's on one leg, bro. He's doing it on one leg, bro. (laughs) 
Ryan Holland's joining us. I can't argue any of that. The guy's unbelievable. I'm not even sure, Ryan, what impressed me more, that lockdown defense or what he did offensively and the fact that he was doing all that on one leg. So he was the NBA Finals MVP, Ryan, back in 2014 when the Spurs beat the Heat. How does this Kawhi compare to that Kawhi? Well, let me give you a little strategy. So back then, Spurs, Kawhi Leonard, he was a 3 and D guy. What the heck do I mean by a 3 and D guy? That means he would knock down open threes, space the floor, if you close out too hard, he put it on the deck, drive to the rim, and dunk. And then he would guard you like hell. LeBron James got hell that series. So much that he ends up being the finals MVP. Now, what does 2019 Kawhi Leonard look like? He learned how to shoot the deep three and his mid-range shot off the bounce. He learned how to create his own shot. The Kawhi Leonard I played against, competed against, did not have that, Jim. So now he doesn't need anybody to succeed. And now, in big moments in the playoffs, this guy is still playing efficient basketball. Not to mention, Jim, he's a robot. He's not, this, is, this, is, this is like something we've never seen. Kobe Bryant, you'd see him literally grit his teeth and will his way. You'd see Michael Jordan trash talk his way. You'd see LeBron James go from laughing and playing and joking and doing all the things that a lot of people cannot stand to just get this, to be a stone-cold killer. This dude, Kawhi Leonard... Does not have emotions. There's nothing missing. <laughs> Dude, he is a robot. My man, I've never seen him change expression. No matter how good things are going or how badly things are going or how jacked up his leg is, you're right. He never even changes expression. All right, so going to the finals, Ryan Hahn's my guest. Who would you put him on? Is he going to check Steph Curry or would you use him a different way defensively? Well, as if you take a page out, ideally in a perfect world, your star does not have to chase around the other team's star. Now, it's glad that you got a guy who can do it because you want to save his legs. You want to save his, uh, save his energy for the offensive end of the floor, and you want to get everything you can out of him. Now, if this was a series that started with Kevin Durant, <laughs> mark my words, you would get the marquee matchup, Durant versus Kawhi. But right now, I let him guard Draymond, and I say rest until we need you. I don't need to overdo it and put you on clay. Right now, it may not be the smartest thing to put you on Steph, but, but right now, I put him on Draymond, let him rest, he can switch all screens, and this may not be a series for Mark Gasol. I think this is a team against the Golden State Warriors. Serge Ibaka has to play heavy minutes, but I, I, I let him rest, bro. He has to rest. Ryan Hollins joining us. All right, Ryan, stay on Kevin Durant for a minute. How much of this series comes down to Kevin Durant's health and when he might return? In other words, can Golden State beat Toronto without Durant? They absolutely can. The, the one thing that I, 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 my concern is, uh, with the Toronto Raptors, Jim, and I want you to remember this, document this, write it down, mark it. Offensively, they struggle. They are elite of the most elite on the defensive end. They can they go pound for pound with the best of them. Anybody who questions that don't know basketball, don't watch basketball. But offensively, they go through these struggles. If you're going to beat Golden, the Golden State Warriors, you take a page out of the Clippers book. I follow that series very carefully and the one thing when the Clippers had success or any other teams had success against Golden State they scored in the 120s Toronto is a scoring team that scores in the 105s 110s that's going to be a problem which means they are going to have to have career shooting days and scoring performances out of Kyle Lowry, Van Fleet, Kawhi we know who he is and Pascal Siakam so their whole team has to score and run and move at a pace that they have never played at before. Ryan, you are a SoCal guy, so let me change up before I let you go. What do you think when you watch the Lakers and what they're going through right now? 
Have you ever thrown up in your mouth, Jim? Yes. It sucks. And so do they. That's the mismanagement of LeBron James coming to L.A. as it left. That's how I feel. I throw up in my mouth every time I hear something silly going on. So many times that you have opportunities that you can go out and get a championship. So many times you can go out and compete. The Lakers, as ugly as it is, they've got young talent, they've got cap space, and they've got a guy who still has a chance to be the best player in the world. Oh, you know what, Jim? Let's settle. Let's settle. He's the third or fourth best player in the world. You don't got a chance, Lakers. Every time they go out and make a mistake, every time they go So every time you see something really silly, you want to vomit in your own mouth. Ryan, what if you were a free agent and you see everything that's coming out of L.A. and about that organization right now? What kind of thoughts are you having? For instance, does the fact that they're still the Lakers and still wear the purple and gold outweigh all these issues and the reports of dysfunction? Or do you not go anywhere near them because of that if you're a star free agent? Jim, you got to ask yourself, as, as any professional, this goes beyond basketball, this is a universal thing, who the heck am I? Who the heck am I? Am I a guy that's comfortable in my own skin to uh, no matter what nonsense is going on around me, I can get on the basketball court and perform? Or am I a guy at the stage of my career that I need a good coach, I need a good system, I need synergy between the front office, the coach, and the players? There's a couple of guys who just know how to go get it, bro. They go get it no matter what's around them, and they don't need much. And there's certain guys that play well in the system. There's certain guys that are at a stage in their career where they're thinking about furthering their career after basketball. They know who they are going to be. They're a 30 or 20-point score, 10-rebound guy. You are who you are, whatever you are. You can't say that about everybody. So if you're a free agent, and you want to go to L.A., it might be the place for you. Kyrie Irving, it might be the place for you. We know who you are. But if you're a guy that's searching, if you're a guy that needs his teammates, this might not be for you, bro. It might not be for you. you got to ask yourself those questions. Bro, you can tell me more than anybody, more than anybody. I, I grew up in L.A. as a young boy. and nothing like winning with the purple and gold on. Well, no, it's nothing like that now. It is nothing like that now, and it doesn't appear that it's going to change anytime soon. You know it. I grew up long before you did in this town loving that basketball team. I've never seen anything like it, and it's not getting better. It's getting worse. So I'm I'm not sure yet. There are guys that will go get it no matter what. I'm just not sure any of those guys want any part of this right now. He is an NBA analyst. He played 10 years in the NBA. He's an L.A. Clippers broadcaster, a panelist from our daily TV show back in the day, and remember, an entrepreneur with Mama Cinch. And I told you I'd bring you back, Ryan. We'll do it again soon. Great to have you. My man. My man. B.I.C., what's up, dude? What's happening, Jimmy? How are you, man? Good, Brad. How about you? I'm great. Uh, hey, ask Cablanasian how well it went for him last year when he showed up to one of these things that I'm competing in. Uh, I love the profile. I don't know if you're aware of this, Jimbo, but Cruz Pedregon has graciously volunteered to let me drive his car this year if I win, which uh, should be really difficult. Cruz, I don't know if I should be doing one calf raise a week to prepare for this or two. I mean, it's, it's got to take just a ton of effort to slam my right foot down on the gas pedal super hard for three entire seconds. So just want to let you know I'm in training. 
Jim, a lot of people have been asking. I wanted to come on here and let you know the following. Yes, I will be doing a new photo shoot this year so everyone can get updated pictures of my hog. Yes, I will do the Jim Rome podcast with you prior to the smack-off. Yes, I will also come in the studio in my Speedo and allow you to interview me, the four-time smack-off champion on the air. No, I won't be having 50 dudes in my phone call the way Left and Laguna will. By the way, when you do my big-eared friend Left smack-off profile, will you also profile all the dudes besides Left that will potentially be in his call this year? And, uh, by the way, everyone uh, should come out to the party at Hennessy's after the smack-off. Left and I are going to get drunk and throw wine at each other like a couple of Orange County housewives. It's going to be a good time for a good man, my man Trapper, and in honor of Trapper Jimmy and my boy Left, I want to sign off with 30 dudes in a phone call, gimmicky bitches like us. The two-time champ to respond to the four-time champ, Left in Laguna. Left, what's going on? Not much, Jimmy. Uh, did I hear Brad say he was going to come in studio and show you his hog? I mean, that's totally unfair. I can't come in studio, but Brad can bring his wife. And I'm assuming his hog is referenced to his wife because it certainly can't be that micro growth he had in his Speedo last year. Good night now!